that will be taken from the book of Matthew, chapter twenty, um, chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight, through chapter twelve, uh, verse twenty-one. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on, on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that, that the priest on Sabbath duty on the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what their, their words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal? On the Sabbath, he said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from the place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice on the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the street. A bruised knee, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smothering wig he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. The word of the Lord. So if we haven't met yet, my name's Katie, and I am so privileged to be the lead pastor here at Harbor of Hope. Um, so there's this great story in my husband Jeremy's family about a Christmas where gift-giving did not go as was expected. 
One Christmas, Jeremy's dad was excited to give my mother-in-law a gift he knew that she had been really wanting. He'd heard her express that she would like this gift, and so he bought it, wrapped it, and put it under the tree. He expected on Christmas morning that she would open the gift and exclamations of joy would pour forth as she saw this gift that he so thoughtfully purchased for her. So Christmas morning came and he offered her this gift of love. My mother-in-law opened her gift and saw a metal detector. My father-in-law waited to hear the joy-filled celebration of a woman who'd gotten just what she wanted for Christmas and said there was confused silence. Bewildered, Jeremy's dad said, see, Kathy, it's just what you wanted, a metal detector. Kathy's reply was, a telescope, Bruce. I said I wanted a telescope for Christmas. <laughs> Have you ever experienced something like this where you're expecting one reaction from somebody and what you get is completely different? Maybe it was like this, like you gave somebody a gift or maybe you asked someone a question or you shared a thought and the person's reaction was just not at all what you expected. That's what's happening in Matthew chapters 11 and 12, where we're going to be today. Today, we're going to take a survey through these two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, and they contain an unexpected reaction, several unexpected reactions to what Jesus has been doing and saying. Remember, Matthew has two goals in writing his gospel. First, he wants his readers to be certain that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so he starts his gospel, right? All the way back at the beginning of Matthew, we read this impressive lineage that Jesus comes from. We read about the miraculous events surrounding his birth. We talked about the baptism of Jesus, where the heavens part and God's voice speaks, affirming who Jesus is. And then in Matthew 5 through 7, we saw Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount preach these impressive sermons about what life is supposed to be like in God's kingdom. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, we read about how Jesus goes around healing all kinds of people from all kinds of diseases, forgiving people. Then in chapter 10, right, Jesus, we talked about this last week, Jesus sent his disciples out, imparting on them the power to heal and preach. If you are in the audience reading along with Matthew so far, you are impressed. This Jesus seems pretty amazing. He might actually be the son of God. Look what he says. Look at all the miracles he performs, the way he speaks with authority. This guy must be legit. So we expect people to do what so far the crowds have done. Follow him. Believe him. Come to him for healing. But then we get to chapters 11 and 12. And suddenly people react in unexpected ways. These two chapters contain stories of people questioning Jesus, opposing Jesus, plotting to kill Jesus. What is going on here? This is unexpected. This is an unexpected reaction to what Jesus has been doing. This is where we have to remember Matthew's second goal in writing his gospel. He wants to train followers of Jesus how to go about the mission of Jesus. Matthew wants to teach Christians how to be Christians, how to follow Jesus, how to live out God's kingdom in a world that is opposed to it. And so remember, we said that Matthew 5 through 7 contains Jesus proclaiming God's kingdom, what it's supposed to be like, and Matthew 8 and 9 were Jesus healing people as a visible demonstration of the kingdom of God and his power. 
And those five chapters were the example for what he sent the disciples to do. That's what we talked about last week, right? They were to go proclaim God's kingdom, just like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. And they were to go heal as a visible demonstration of God's kingdom, just like Jesus did in Matthew 8 and 9. We're to speak of the beauty of life in God's kingdom. And we are to work in whatever ways we can to help this earth look more like God's kingdom. That's our job as followers of Jesus. And so in Matthew 10, when Jesus sent out his disciples, he spent a lot of time telling them that there would be opposition. There would be rejection. And he encouraged them that God would be with them. He would tell them what to say. And so now, here in Matthew 11 and 12, Matthew's showing them what that will look like. He shows us that Jesus encountered questions and opposition. And he instructs followers of Jesus to follow Jesus' example. So, like I said, today we're going to do another overview of a large amount of material. So keep your Bibles open. If you've got a physical Bible in your lap or if you've got your Bible on an app, if you don't have a Bible, there's a stack in the back by the sound booth and there's some out at the welcome table out there that we would love for you to just take as our gift to you. So keep your Bibles open because we're going to go through a lot of material so you can see how this is all laid out. So today we're going to talk about three things, three things that Matthew wants us to learn from the example of Jesus in this text. Three things that Matthew wants followers of Jesus to know so that we can effectively complete the mission we have to proclaim and demonstrate God's kingdom everywhere we go. So the first thing we learn from Jesus in these chapters is the reality that on our mission of proclaiming and demonstrating God's kingdom to the world, we will encounter questions and opposition. We will. Opposition is inevitable. The systems of power in this world that like their power and like things how they are do not want God's kingdom, which will come and interrupt and destroy their their, uh, systems of injustice. Questions are to be expected. Sometimes God doesn't work in ways we expect. Sometimes it's hard to understand what Jesus is up to. And Matthew made that clear when Jesus sent the disciples out in chapter 10. And now here in chapters 11 and 12, we're going to see five different examples of questions or challenges to Jesus and his mission. Some are from the Pharisees, but chapter 11 begins with a question from a really unexpected person. If you look back at the beginning of Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19, we read that John the Baptist has some questions for Jesus. Some of John's disciples had come to ask Jesus a question on John's behalf. John the Baptist was in prison for speaking out against Herod Antipas, who had assumed leadership of Israel after King Herod died. So John's in prison, and he has some questions. He sent his disciples to ask if Jesus is really the one that they've been waiting for, or if they should look for someone else. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he's the one who told people to get ready for the Messiah. He's the one who said so powerfully in Matthew Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So what's happening here? What's happening? Well, it seems that John, in a season of doubt, in a season of discouragement, in prison, 
is looking at what it was that God prompted him to prophesy about Jesus, about the coming Messiah. And he's thinking, Jesus' ministry doesn't really look like what I expected. And so now he's wondering if Jesus is actually the Messiah. So Matthew 11 begins with John the Baptist questioning Jesus' identity. Moving on in chapter 11 to verse 20, those next few verses we see Jesus lamenting the lack of faith in towns where he's been performing miracles. Those verses are a lament over the lack of faith he sees. He's been healing, he's been doing miracles, he's been teaching, and many people just still don't believe what he's saying. From there, in chapter 12, we see three different run-ins with the Pharisees. Their hostility to Jesus grows exponentially in chapter 12 over just the course of a few verses. In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples picking and eating grain on the Sabbath, and they criticize Jesus for allowing his disciples to break the laws restricting work on the Sabbath. They say, hey, they're picking, they're picking grain in the fields. That's work. You shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. And then they follow Jesus to the synagogue, and we read that their hostility is increasing. In Matthew 12, verses 9 and 10, we read, Going on from that place, he, Jesus, went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So by verse 10, the Pharisees are trying to find something to charge him with. They are looking for something to say about Jesus that could allow them to bring him to court over his disregard of the law. And in the next two verses, Jesus asserts that God places a priority on the well-being of humanity over ritual laws. And he heals this man with a shriveled hand. The Pharisees rightly see this as a challenge to their interpretation of the law and therefore their position in Israel. And they become so angry that by verse 14 we read, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So first they criticize him, then they try to find charges to bring against him, and now they're ready to kill him. Moving on from there, in verse 22, Jesus casts a demon out of a man, which enables this man to see and speak for the first time in a long time. And we see that the crowds are starting to ask, could this be the son of David? Which is Messiah language, okay? They're starting to think, maybe this guy could be the Messiah. The Pharisees have a different take. Matthew 12, 24 says, when the Pharisees heard, they, they said it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And finally, at the end of chapter 12, in verses 38 to 45, after Jesus has been healing and teaching and casting out demons and confounding them with their wisdom, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law go to Jesus and ask for a sign. Have they been paying attention? What kind of sign do they want? What do they mean they want a sign? See, these stories are here to serve as examples to the readers of Matthew's gospel that although some people will respond to the good news of the kingdom of God with openness and curiosity and belief, others will respond with doubt, some with suspicion, and some with outright violence. Again, Matthew wants his readers to be prepared. Not everyone wants the kingdom of God. Not everyone is open to God's rule and reign. The kingdoms of this world do not want to be replaced by God's kingdom. This is meant to prepare us, to help us be ready. 
Listen, there are people we love who are not yet interested in what Jesus is offering them. There are people we love who are maybe even hostile to anything having to do with Jesus and his kingdom. There are people who are suspicious for one reason or another. People who doubt, people who are angry. And we need to be prepared for the reality that every single person is different. Every single person will respond differently to the story and invitation of Jesus. This is important for us to remember. As we interact with our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, be ready for people to react differently to the message of Jesus. Be ready. Don't be surprised. Be ready for questions. Be ready for doubt. Be ready for some people just to not be willing to hear. Matthew says, be ready. If I'm honest, the news that not everybody wants what Jesus has to offer really frustrates me. <laughs> right? Like, Jesus is so good. I feel like if they just knew, if they just saw the reality of Jesus, not like the caricature and like weird things about Jesus that people say on the news, like those loud, obnoxious, mean Christians, right, that we see, like if they really knew Jesus, if they just really knew him, that maybe they'd want him. And when I was a younger Christian, I felt like I just needed to keep talking. Keep talking, keep telling them, keep putting it in their face. And then inevitably, I would despair when more of my talking didn't get the job done. This is where Matthew has a second really important thought for us in these verses. In these two chapters, Matthew encourages us to see the truth that in the face of opposition or questions, God will empower us to engage. God will empower us to engage. He will show us the right way to respond with wisdom in each situation we face. We see this in Jesus' interactions with people in these two chapters of 11 and 12. With John the Baptist, right? Jesus knew that John was discouraged. So Jesus didn't take John's questions personally. He didn't get offended and throw up his hands and sigh and roll his eyes at John. No. He knew John had been in prison, which meant two things. One, John was discouraged and lonely. And two, John hadn't seen what Jesus was doing. He'd been in prison. And so Jesus' response to John was to tell him stories of what has been happening. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 11, we read, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This response is alluding to a prophecy from Isaiah 35. So Jesus is saying, listen to what's been happening. Doesn't this sound like what the prophet said God would do? Be encouraged. Have faith. You were right on track with your declaration of who I am. And in the following verses, Jesus goes on to talk about what an incredible person John is. That he's more than a prophet. He's the new Elijah. He holds a place of honor. Jesus' response to a discouraged follower was to tell him what God had been doing and encourage him about his faithful obedience. That's a different response than we see Jesus having toward the unbelieving towns in verses 20 and 24 of Matthew 11. In these verses, Jesus sounds like an Old Testament prophet. He's lamenting, he's longing for these people to just believe, to open their eyes and see what God is doing. 
These verses, when we read them, they're not Jesus prescribing destruction on these towns for their unbelief. They are Jesus lamenting the inevitable and tragic destination that hard-heartedness leads to. So he encourages, he laments, and then we see a totally different response to the Pharisees in chapter 12. When the Pharisees complain about Jesus' disciples breaking the Sabbath laws, Jesus comes back at them in a way that they'd understand. He engages them in a rabbinical discussion. He offers a scriptural, a legal, and a prophetic defense of his disciples' actions. He pulls from the three parts of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the writings, and the prophets. He refers to the story of David eating the sacred bread from the temple in 1 Samuel 12. He talks about the priests, how they have to violate the Sabbath laws in order to fulfill their work in the temple. They work on the Sabbath. They do sacrifices on the, on the Sabbath. And then he talks about uh, that, that phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's from Hosea 6, 6. And that verse is meant to challenge people that the well-being of humanity takes precedence over adhering to rituals. And then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus gives them an example of everyday life. He says to them, if any of you have as a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you take hold of it and lift it out? That's technically breaking the Sabbath laws. But he says, how much more valuable are people than sheep? So yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he responds to the Pharisees in a way that makes sense to them. And then we'll see, as the Pharisees become enraged and they seek to do violence, Jesus knows it's time to withdraw. It's time to withdraw. That's what happens in uh, Matthew 12, verse 15. Jesus doesn't stay until the Pharisees all agree with him. He doesn't keep arguing. He sees that they're not interested in belief, and so he leaves them alone, and he goes back to healing people who are open. At the end of chapter 12, in verses 39 to 45, Jesus speaks again to the Pharisees very directly this time. He says that the Assyrian city of Nineveh and the pagan queen of Sheba are better off than the Pharisees because when Nineveh heard the truth, Nineveh repented. When the queen of Sheba heard wisdom, she listened. So he's challenging them now. He's saying to them very directly the result of their, refuse to, their refusal to listen. So in these two chapters, what Matthew's showing us is varied responses to questions and challenges. We see compassionate encouragement. We see academic debate. We see lament. We see parables. We see direct challenge. These varied responses are meant as an example to follow and a demonstration of what uh, Jesus had promised the disciples in Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, when Jesus said that they would face opposition, he says, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. These varied responses to people with questions and opposition are examples to followers of Jesus of how God will empower us to know the right thing to say at the right time. Jesus was clear in his ministry that he only spoke the words the Father told him to say. He only did what the Father told him to do. So these examples of conflict, of confrontation, of question, they contain real-life examples of how God empowers us to respond in the right way as we face questions or opposition on our mission. 
Something that's been really helpful for me personally is just to consider what might be the most effective way of sharing the gospel with people who are in different positions, different situations in their journey to God. It might be helpful to consider people on kind of a continuum from maybe antagonistic on the one end to actively seeking on the other. And as we move towards this actively seeking end of the continuum, words become more important. (laughs) They have questions, and you need to answer them. They need someone to tell them exactly how this Jesus thing works and tell them how to take their next step with Jesus. On the other end of the continuum with someone who's antagonistic or even just someone who's not really interested, the fewer words you use, the better. Your words will turn them off. And so the best thing to do on that end of the continuum is just to show the love of Jesus with your actions. The most important thing Matthew wants us to know is that when we encounter questions, when we encounter opposition, the Holy Spirit will tell us what to say or do if we listen. When you're talking to a coworker who has questions about God, when you're interacting with your neighbor who's suspicious of religion, when you're answering your child's deep theological question when he was supposed to be in bed 30 minutes ago, <laughs> just me, <laughs> the Holy Spirit will help you know what to say. That's what Jesus is promising. That's what Matthew's demonstrating here. So we need to, like Jesus, cultivate this relationship with God where we listen to him, where we learn to pause and ask for his help when we face questions, when we face opposition. We can trust that God will empower us to engage in each situation. So Matthew says first, expect questions, expect opposition. But he says, don't be afraid because God will empower us to engage appropriately in each situation. And then the third thing Matthew wants us to know in these two chapters is because God will empower you to engage, here's the big idea, when challenges come, we can trust God and keep our eyes on our mission. Trust God and keep our eyes on our mission. That's what Jesus did. When John was doubting and had questions, Jesus went back to his mission. See what's happening? God is here. People are being healed and freed and made new and restored to community. When the Pharisees started to get hostile and wanted to kill him, Jesus answered wisely when it was appropriate, and then he went back to his mission. He went and healed the sick and told them about God's kingdom. Because Jesus knew that there are so many people who need the good news of the kingdom of God and want it. He knew, Jesus knew then, that there were people burdened by the weight of a religion that's just all about following the rules. He knew there were people looking for love and purpose in all the wrong places. He knew there were people hopelessly lost in the dark. He knew there were people that had no idea how good life could be in God's kingdom. So when he faced opposition, Jesus trusted God to empower him to engage wisely, and then he kept on doing his mission. Matthew's saying the same is true for us. We just need to trust God and keep our eyes on our mission. Our mission is to proclaim the kingdom of God and demonstrate it. If people aren't open to listening to what God says, to what we believe about what God wants the world to be like, what we believe about God's great love for them, 
We can demonstrate it with our lives. And last week, we talked about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We, we like him, as we, we can keep seeking healing for the world, even when we feel resistance from systems of injustice, we can keep on with our work. Listen, if your neighbor isn't open to hearing about God's love in words, be God's love to him in action. If your coworker is suspicious of Christians because of a bad experience they've had, demonstrate what Jesus looks like in your integrity and your dependability and your humility. And if you meet with open hostility, maybe the best thing for you to do is just give that person some space. It's possible you are not the person to reach them. Perhaps there's just a personality difference or maybe some baggage from the past that makes it hard. Obviously, yes, ask God to help you see if there's anything you're doing that's making it harder for them to see his love through you, but it's possible that sometimes the most loving thing we can do is trust people to God and give them some space. And then look around to see if there's maybe anybody else in your world that needs the hope of Jesus and is open to it. When Jesus was faced with opposition, he kept his eyes on his mission. And in Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 30, he speaks about the invitation he offers. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus knew from the get-go that he couldn't make anyone choose his kingdom. God created people with free will, the ability to choose. Jesus lamented those who wouldn't choose his kingdom. He lamented hard-heartedness that only leads to darkness and death. He longed for everyone to see the goodness of life in his kingdom, to take up this invitation. And he just kept on inviting people in inviting them to lay down their way of life that felt like a heavy burden around their neck, inviting them to give up what only led to distress, inviting them to his kingdom, his way of life, where the yoke is easy and the burden is light because he carries us, inviting them to a way of life that leads to peace, to rest for our souls. And that is what we are called to do. Extend the invitation. Tell people how much better life is in God's kingdom and invite them to join in. Invite them to a life that leads to peace, a life that leads to joy, a life that leads to rest for their souls. However they respond is not ultimately up to us. Our job is to keep making the invitation relying on the Holy Spirit to provide us with the right words and actions. That's it. That's our mission. Let's pray. Jesus, we have tasted and seen how good you are. In this room, we have stories of how you have given us rest for our souls, how we were seeking purpose and love and meaning in all the wrong places, and we found it only in you. And God, you know that what we want more than anything is for everyone we know and love, for the whole world, 
to feel that same thing, to experience that same joy and peace that comes from belonging to you. And God, we confess. We confess that sometimes we get in our own way trying to tell people how good you are. Sometimes we miss opportunities. Sometimes we misuse opportunities. And some of us have just been praying and working for so long for those we love, and we are just tired. And so we want to receive your invitation this morning, too, that is still for us to rest in you, to lay down the heavy burden of our love and longing for others at your feet, and to just ask for your help to know when to speak, when to be silent, when to act, when to be still. Help us as a community to stay focused passionately on our mission of proclaiming and demonstrating what beautiful life in your kingdom looks like. And help us to rely on you to empower us for that mission. In Jesus' name, amen.